0: Coming right up on the Switch Lake City podcast, we're going to be talking about some position battles. Otag Baji versus Jordan Clarkson. The battle at four, who's going to be the starting four, as well as the battle of point guard. And what those battles might look like. Coming right up, um, this episode is brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. As always, check the show notes for details. This episode of the switch Lake city podcast is brought to you by underdog fantasy i want to tell you about the easiest way to get in on some action on the nba it's underdog fantasy and their pick'em game just pick higher or lower on your favorite or least favorite player stats and you can win up to 20 times your money in a single night underdog keeps it super simple with their easy to use website and mobile apps pick between two and five players to fill out your entry. get every pick right and take home some solid hard cash Use the code SWISH, S-W-I-S-H, and get your first deposit doubled up to $100 by Underdog. That means if you pay $100, then they will match that $100 deposit, and you'll have $200 to put on fantasy games. Visit underdogfantasy.com or find them in the App Store, and don't forget to register with my promo code SWISH to get your fantasy to get your first deposit doubled up to $100, sign up today with promo code SWISH and get your first deposit doubled up to $100. You must be 18 plus and present in a state where underdog fantasy operates. Terms apply. Concerned with your play, call 1 800 522 4700 or visit www.ncpgambling.org. Jazz fans, NBA fans, it's great to have you back. It's great to be doing another episode of the Switch Lake City podcast. At the time you are listening to this, I'm actually gonna be on my honeymoon. So feel free to send me a little congrats. Maybe even send a little wedding gift. Get signed up on Underdog's Fantasy. I don't know. Uh, I'm excited to get married. And, you know, that's good enough. So we we got some we got some interesting stuff. Um I was doing I was doing kind of the prep for this podcast and was like, "Man, what should I what should I talk about? What is there to talk about? Heck, we're in like the first week of August. Things are pretty dead. Haven't heard from Damian Lillard in a couple weeks. So I think it's time to start talking about the position battles, talking about who's going to be the starting five, some interesting pros and cons of each position battle." And looking at NBA history, it's interesting because there have been some infamous position battles. There have been guys that have started on the bench and ended up being starters. And there's a lot of reasons for that. It's it's always interesting. Um, the first one that came to my mind as a Jazz fan is John Stockton, who started the first couple of years on the bench. And he was still really good off the bench. Like, it's it's pretty incredible how he would come in and get, like, 10 points, 8 assists every game off the bench. I mean, like that presence off the bench is obviously super important. So he's a guy that started his career off the bench, ended up being a starter, ended up being one of the greatest point guards of all time. Another one is James Harden. You're always going to think about James Harden as somebody that came off the bench bench, and then as soon as he got the starting position, he became this incredible MVP caliber player. And an interesting one, kind of more recent, is LaMelo Ball, his rookie season. And this is going to be relevant later. Um, but he actually started that season, he was benched that season behind Devontae Graham. And then Devontae Graham got an injury. LaMelo Ball inserted himself into the starting lineup and essentially locked down the Rookie of the Year award by being a starter. One of my favorite ones, Kyle Lowry versus Mike Conley in Memphis. Kyle Lowry was blossoming. He was flourishing in Memphis. And then they drafted Mike Conley. And the franchise kind of signaled to Kyle Lowry that Mike was going to be the starting point guard, that he was going to be the point guard of the future. Was that a good decision or not? I don't I don't I don't really know. Uh Kyle Lowry has kind of extended his career longer than anybody thought he would. So that that's an interesting conversation. But that's kind of an infamous Really good player on the bench behind a good starter. And I think one of the most the most famous ones, the f- most famous incidents of a player being on the bench behind another legend or another great player, is Steve Nash behind Jason Kidd his second year in Phoenix. Looking at like their old point guard room is kind of ridiculous having Steve Nash and Jason Kidd because neither of those two were starting in Steve Nash's first year in Phoenix. And so they were both coming off the bench and eventually Jason Kidd starts, begins to start at the end of that season. And then the next season, Steve Nash is playing backup to Jason Kidd the entire season. And then Steve Nash goes to Dallas and starts, starts to play a little bit more begins to start towards his second year in Dallas. All this to say, it's interesting because I don't think if you start on the bench on your career that you're a bad player. I think there's opportunities for you to flourish. And more than anything, it's all about opportunity. Look at Draymond Green. This is another example. He was a guy that played off the bench for Golden State. And then I believe David Lee got injured and Draymond became their starting four. And that has had profound repercussions on basketball because Draymond essentially changed along with other players before him, but he changed the way the big man position is played. He's a big part of why players are able to, and teams are able to do small ball basketball. And all that to say, it's it's all about opportunity. So we'll see who gets that opportunity this year. First, we're going to be talking about Ochag Baji versus Jordan Clarkson, because I think this is an interesting debate as to who should be the starting point guard, or who, sh- who should be the starting shooting guard. So we'll get to them in just a second. So I think the Ochag Baji versus Jordan Clarkson as the starting shooting guard is actually an interesting conversation. Um, It isn't something that I had necessarily thought about, but the more I've thought about it, the more it might make sense for Ocha Baji to be the starting shooting guard, or there's at least some benefits to it. So looking at their last seasons um, and kind of looking at the Jazz, what the Jazz wanted to do, I was able to come up with some conclusions, some arguments as to who should be the backup to. I think the first thing you have to ask yourself is who fits the Utah Jazz's identity better and what they're trying to achieve. In the last press conference of the season, it was pretty clear that with the Utah Jazz, they value shooting, they value size, they value defense. And those are the things that they were looking for. I don't think that just means they were looking on the free agency market or the draft for those things. I think even internally they're looking for those things. And that shooting defense size, that's part of their overall philosophy. That's going to be part of their philosophy. We know that Danny Age teams have those three things traditionally. And so I think that's something we could expect from the Jazz, that they're going to want to have a two guard that can shoot, defend, and have size. Baji fits this. Looking at the shooting, I mean, I don't think it's outrageous to say that Jordan Clarkson is a better shooter than baji Jordan Clarkson is clearly a better shooter, creator, playmaker, shot creator than baji But it's interesting once you start diving into the numbers. Uh, Jordan Clarkson last year, he shot 44% from the field and 33.8% from three. baji shot 43% from the field and 35% from three. So the number I'm looking at is a three-point percentage. I want to see how good Ochai was able to shoot from three. As well as where he shoots from three, Jordan Clarkson can shoot from anywhere, and he does shoot from anywhere, and there is no shot that is a bad shot in the eyes of Jordan Clarkson. That's great. I love that for him. Ochai Baggi, on the other hand, is much more selective about his shots and where he wants to shoot from. Typically, I mean, to start the season, he was exclusively shooting from the corner three. That was the only three-point shot he was taking because that was probably the only three-point shot he was comfortable with. As the season went on, he got more and more comfortable and started shooting a little bit more above the break. Um, and that's why his three-point percentage ended up dipping a little bit throughout the season. But I also think it's good to be able to show that variability in your shooting. And so that was something that I really liked to see from Ochai Bajit. Um, comparing them as shooters is difficult because Ochaegbaje is much more of a catch and shoot type of guy. Um, whereas Jordan Clarkson is a guy that does great off the catch and shoot. He's totally great, but he also creates for himself a lot. Um, he comes around screens. He shoots a lot of pull-up jumpers, a lot of spot up stuff that Ochaegbaje doesn't do too much of. So it's hard to evaluate them just based on shooting. Because I think you're going to trust Jordan Clarkson's track record of being a shooter more than you're going to trust Ochagbaje's. And I also think Jordan Clarkson's overall creation might make him more of a valuable asset in the starting lineup than Ochagbaje. But it all kind of comes back to, are the Jazz trying to win? Or are they trying to develop? What, what are the goals? What is, what is the goal for this season? I think internally they would say, we're trying to win. There's no That's a no-brainer. They were trying to win last year until they weren't. And so I, I would expect they start the same way. But I also wonder, you know, it's kind of like investing in in, in something. Um, when you invest in something, you want to take care of it. You want to make sure it's doing okay. The Jazz have invested in baji They made it clear that he was part of their core. And they, they said that around the trade deadline last year. Do they still believe that? I'm not sure. Maybe Summer League, maybe the end of the season last year, showed some of his limitations and... That answer isn't clear like it used to be. But if he is still a valuable asset and you still believe him to be one of your three franchise cornerstones, and that list has probably expanded a little bit with Keontae George's emergence and it might expand even more. But if that if that is what you believe, if you're the Utah Jazz and you believe that Ochag Baji is one of your is going to be one of your top three guys, or that he's a quote unquote untouchable, then I think you have to start investing in him. So there's this whole other argument. The shooting the shooting is great. I think both of them are going to be fine shooters. Um, the difference really just comes from creation and how they're able to get their three-point shots. For me, the big differentiator between Jordan Clarkson and Ochai Agbaje is the defense. Ochai is obviously a much better defender. I think anybody that watched the Jazz last year would probably agree with me. Here's my question, though. How much time do you want to invest with him guarding number one options. So let's let's throw out some numbers. Let's look at some numbers. Looking at all the players Ocha guarded most, this is via nbastats.com. The player he guarded the most last season was Austin Reeves, who he guarded for about 13 minutes. Then Isaiah Joe on OKC. Jason Tatum. I thought that was interesting because um, the Jazz only played The Celtics twice. And so for him to have guarded Tatum the third most out of all the players he guarded is kind of interesting. So then you got Jason Tatum, you got Jalen Williams, Shea Gilgis Alexander, John Morant, Tyler Hero, Gordon Hayward, Anthony Edwards. You kind of get to this range where you're where he was starting to guard a lot of the other team's best player. And look, these numbers aren't perfect because baji didn't play a complete season. He wasn't playing every single game and he was coming off the bench for a lot of these games or wasn't even like in the actual rotation for some of these games. So it's hard to look at these numbers and say, you know, this is, this is what Ochagbaje is as a defender. Um, this is who he's going to be. However, digging deeper into these numbers, I wanted to look at who, what position was he guarding the most. Because I think that helps you understand where you want to play Ochai this season. So he spent, of the 480 minutes that he was guarding players, he spent 148 of those guarding forwards and 306 of those guarding guards. So the majority of his his NBA minutes, he was guarding guards. And because of that, I think you want to play him at the two. However, looking at the depth chart, looking at some of the other twos, you have THT, Dunn, Sexton, Keontae, George. Are any of those guys going to play the two? And if so, does that mean Ochai can play the two? Or would you rather put him as your backup three? And I think I think that's a question worth asking. You know, Would you rather have Ochai as your starting two to be able to guard other guards, to be able to guard Shea and Devin Booker? And some of those elite guards, or would you rather have him guard forwards? I think there's an argument for either at the end of the day. This is a basketball philosophy that a lot of people have, but they want to, they want to say you are who you guard. And I think that's fair. I think that's probably an okay philosophy as far as like understanding what position players are going to play. So is Ochai going to be a guy that guards threes? Because if he is, then that makes him a three. But if he's a guy that guards twos, if he guards guards, like he spent most of his time on Austin Reeves, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Jalen Williams, then do you does it make more sense to have him just play the two? These are some of the questions I think the Jazz have to answer as they're starting to form their rotations, get into training camp, try to decide what lineups are going to work and what lineups aren't going to work. My other thing with this is you want to invest in Nochak Baji's defense. And in order to invest in that, I think you want him getting experience guarding the best players. A lot of times with defense, this is something I've learned from Kobe Bryant um, talking on his detail show that he used to do with ESPN plus, but You kind of, as a defender, you start to understand players' tendencies. Look, like, I got older brothers. I played basketball with my older brothers all the time. I have one older brother, and I know his crossover, and I know where to stick my hand. And I don't get a steal every time, but I can get a steal a decent amount of the time because I've been able to read that play and because I've seen it so much face-to-face. I think it's the same thing being an NBA defender, where if you're able to get a lot of this experience early in your career, guarding some of the best players, let's say the Jazz matchup with the Phoenix Suns in the playoffs, and Baji has spent minutes and minutes guarding Devin Booker, studying him, understanding his tendencies. It just makes it easier to guard him, I think. And this is where we get some of the incredible matchups that we've had. I think Kawhi... You know, he spent minutes guarding LeBron. They kind of figured each other out to an extent. Kevin Durant and LeBron. You know, you have these players that play against each other, and then they start to learn each other's game. They start to learn how you can guard them, how you can't guard them. And I wonder if the Jazz, if there's an argument for the Jazz to play Ochai as many minutes against these starting caliber players against the best players in the world so that he can start to learn their tendencies so he can improve as a defender. I think that's an investment you have to look at and seriously consider. The whole other argument about this for Jordan Clarkson is you just renegotiated a contract with Jordan Clarkson. You're paying him around $24 million this year. Do you really think Jordan Clarkson extended with the idea that he was not going to be the starter? We've seen throughout his career that he's probably better coming off the bench and his skill set is probably more valuable coming off the bench. Heck, he, if you look at the last five years, Jordan Clarkson leads all bench players in basically every statistical category, including points, field goals made, three-pointers made. But at the end of the day, he did resign that extension. Um, an extension he didn't have to resign. He could have opted out, could have become a free agent, tried to go somewhere else. So my question is, did he come back with the idea that he is going to be your backup again. I kind of don't think so at this stage in his career. Coming up, we're going to talk about John Collins, Kelly Olynyk, and Taylor Hendricks at the four, and who I think is going to win on that spot. The starting power forward position is interesting if you're the Utah Jazz. I think it's absolutely a blast to look at all of the giant, humongous lineups that the Jazz can roll out. Looking at their starting lineup, it's pretty safe to say Walker Kessler is going to be your starting five, and Larry Markkinen is going to be your starting three. I think I think we've established that, yeah. So the next question is who's going to be the four? Because you just traded Rudy Gay in a second round pick for John Collins, who has had kind of an up and down NBA career, but there's hope that you can invest in him, maybe rehabilitate his value and. Maybe he ends up being a good player. Maybe he ends up being a good trade piece. I don't know. We'll see. You also just drafted a power forward, a guy that projects to be a power forward by all accounts with your top 10 pick. You also have this guy that started pretty much every game he could. And Kelly Olinick, played heavy minutes of the four and the five has a lot of experience and continuity. So there's really just, there's three really good options. Like if the jazz were only rolling into the season with Kelly Olenek, I'd feel pretty good about that because of what he does add. However, you all of a sudden have three options. I want to talk about John Collins first and make a case for him. I think out of the three, he's probably the most talented overall player. He's a better defender than Kelly Olenek, which isn't a a very high bar. I think he's probably a better defender than current Taylor Hendricks just because Taylor Hendricks has to learn the NBA game and he's gotten basically zero experience so far. So John Collins, I think he has the edge on defense. He's also the most athletic of the three. Like, guys, if you haven't looked up the John Collins dunk mixtape on YouTube, it's a it's a treat to watch. I would go watch it immediately. The Jaws have made it clear that they value size, shooting, athleticism, defense. While John Collins isn't perfect um, in any three of those, I mean, like he has pretty good size, but he's not a perfect defender. He's definitely not a perfect shooter. I think he provides enough. And just because of the overall raw talent is there, it might be worth playing him. I honestly think he has the strongest case of the three. Um, when you're just talking about fit, as well as like constructing a roster, having a guy like John Collins, between Lauren marketing and Walker Kessler is very valuable. He's a guy that's going to be able to score. He can do a tiny bit of playmaking, which I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued to see if he gets more opportunities to play, make, especially out of the post. Um, I think he projects to be like a pretty good defender alongside Walker Kessler. He has experience playing with a big five. And he's, he's just a, an incredibly versatile player. And I think that's very attractive if you're the Jazz. You've also invested a little bit in him. So not only did you give up Rudy Gay in a second round pick, which isn't that much, but you also are investing your cap space in him. And I think you got to figure out sooner or later whether or not that that was a good investment. And I think the quickest way to do so will be playing him at the starting four. However, Kelly Olenek just had a, an incredible season. And one of the things I've talked about on this podcast, one of the themes that I think we learned from this last NBA playoffs was about continuity. The Denver Nuggets had a lot of continuity, um, though it was like the full, the first full healthy season of this group being together. Um, they did have continuity just because a lot of them had played together. Jamal Murray and Jokic had played in the playoffs before together. And there was overall just a good sense of continuity that they were able to build upon through past playoff experiences, through past regular seasons. Kelly Olinick absolutely fits the Jazz's continuity timeline. Um, Having played an entire season with Walker Kessler and Lauren Markinen, he's learned a lot how to play with those two. Um, We saw how good he was at setting up Lauren Markinen, and I dove into this a little bit in my last episode about who assisted Laurie Markkanen the most and how they were able to maximize him. And I believe Kelly Olenek had assisted him the third most behind Mike Conley and maybe Taylor Horton Tucker. So I think that's valuable because I do think part of the season is trying to figure out how to maximize Laurie Markkanen even further and seeing what his limits are. And so I think Kelly Olynyk is a perfect player to play there. The defense is very questionable though. And right now the, the jazz just like as a defensive team i think they project to be pretty okay um especially interior on in the interior with walker kessler like that's always going to be a strength for them because they have walker kessler so you could probably get away with playing a kelly Olenek. however i wonder if he's just better suited to be a veteran bench presence to be a not that he he'll be sitting on the bench but to be a guy that comes off the bench plays with some of the second units, plays with some of the players that don't have as much experience, plays with Taylor Horn Tucker, Keontae George, just provides like a stable presence with that group. I wonder if that's more valuable for the team overall. I think the main thing in Kelly O'Linick's favor for him to be the starting five, starting four is that he could also essentially be your point guard and run a lot of stuff. We were able to see his playmaking ability last season. And that was crucial for the Jazz. We've talked about the void at point guard and how there's kind of a playmaking void. And I wonder if Kelly Olenek can be part of the answer to that. Also, just going to throw a little nugget in here. If you haven't watched game seven of the Celtics versus the Wizards, and I believe. Man, it was like 2016, I want to say maybe 2017. Incredible game. Isaiah Thomas, Kelly O'Linick. Kelly Olinick took over that game. I remember that was kind of like my first exposure of Kelly Olinick since he went to Gonzaga. I had watched a little bit of him at, at Gonzaga, but I was a kid. So watching him versus that awesome Wizards team, which I was in love with, with John Wall and Bradley Beal, Otto Porter Jr., it was kind of a heartbreaker to see him win that game seven. But at the same time, he's a guy that has experience in the NBA, and I think that's where he adds a little bit of value to the jazz he's played in game sevens he's played in the playoffs he has winning habits i think that's why he's been an attractive veteran presence for some of these young rebuilding teams like houston like detroit and now utah and so i wonder if that on-court experience will be able to help raise walker kessler larry market and ceilings make them better players either way i think they're going to play a lot together Uh, maybe not all three of them at the same time but i think Linux will have plenty of opportunities to play with both Kessler and Markinen. And because of that, maybe it's not necessary to start him. Taylor Hendricks. He's the last variable in this equation. He's young. He's young. He's only 19 years old. The Jazz drafted him number nine. It's hard for me to think of a reality where the Jazz draft somebody number nine and then just take zero swings at him you know put him in zero give him zero opportunities I think you really have to put him in a position to succeed I don't know what that position to succeed is yet but I do have a couple a couple thoughts I think you could put him in the starting lineup theoretically I think he's the best fit between Markin and Kessler actually um he spreads the floor He acts as a secondary room protector. He can probably guard some threes that Larry Markkinen might not be able to. Like, I think he projects to be a pretty good fit between Larry Markkinen and Kessler, and I'm absolutely ecstatic to see what that lineup would look like with all that size, that shooting, and that defense. But I also think by putting him in an opportunity to succeed, maybe that means that you have to bring him in off the bench and only play him small minutes a game. Give him a lot of reps in the G League. Um, the unfortunate thing about Taylor Hendricks is he's kind of just a hypothetical at this point because we weren't able to see him in summer league. We really don't know what he can do. And so I think there's a good chance the first we see of him will be in the G League. Or in preseason. I'm, I'm, I'm sure we'll see him in preseason a bit, but I think we'll be exposed to him in heavy minutes in the, pre- in the G League. And I don't think we'll see a ton of him at the beginning of the season. I think that fits in line with Will Hardy's values as a coach. Um, nobody, because of their draft position, earns a spot in the lineup, according to Will Hardy. And I think that's, that's totally fair. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but Will Hardy is also keen on, hey, if a guy is ready, then they can take their spot. We saw that with Walker Kessler last year. He was a guy that proved to be ready. Pretty much immediately, but he really had to earn his minutes to be kind of the backup or to be the starting center. And it really didn't come until the Jazz traded Jared Vanderbilt a little bit before that. So, I don't know. I I would be very surprised if Taylor Hendricks is a starting four on opening night. But kind of going along with what I was talking about with Baj, you invested in him. By drafting him number nine, you have control over his future for the next four years and then some because most players on rookie contracts end up extending. So I wonder if Taylor Hendricks is one of those players that maybe takes a second, but you also want to invest in him. And one of the best ways to invest in him is by playing him heavy minutes, good minutes, high-quality minutes, not just at the end of the game, but in high-quality minutes in difficult situations so that he can learn the most that he's able to. I just got to say, I'm glad I'm not the one making these decisions because I think I'd be under pretty heavy scrutiny. Um, I think there's definitely an argument for Taylor Hendricks to be the starting four. I think John Holl- John Collins will be the starting four on opening night, and you'll probably have some sort of combination between Olenek and Hendricks playing the four and the five off the bench. But by having all three of these guys, it just gives the Jazz a lot of options, and I think that's a great place to be. It's always great to have options. Coming up after a little break, we're going to be talking about Sexton, THT, Dunn, George, who's going to be the starting point guard, and what that battle might look like. I think the biggest question of the offseason, after all the moves have been set, after it looks like this roster is pretty much finalized, who's going to be the starting point guard? So you got to look at four guys, because it's all going to come down to these four guys. Colin Sexton... Taylor Horton Tucker, Chris Dunn, and Keontae George. Now, I've said, I've said, I believe Colin Sexton is going to be the starting point guard on opening night. There is a serious case for all four of these guys, though. And I think that's what makes this battle the most intriguing of these three. Because any three of these guys could take the battle, could grab it, and run away with it. Um... We got to start with Colin Sexton because I think he's the most likely to be the starting point guard on opening night. I don't know if that's the best long term decision, but I do think it's what's going to happen in the short term. Colin Sexton, as a starter last year, averaged 16 and a half points per game, 4.8 assists per game, 2.2 rebounds per game, and played in 29 minutes per game while as a starter. Some important things to note um, while Colin Sexton was playing as a starter, the Jazz were still trying to win games. A fair amount of his starter minutes came when Mike Conley got injured, and then a little bit after Mike Conley was traded, Colin Sexton started to play a little bit more. So that was that's kind of what happened there. Um, I, I say that context because you'll look at THT and Chris Dunn's numbers as a starter, and both their numbers are a lot better. So let's talk about Sexton for a second. Sexton, he's a downhill scorer. I think we know that. He attacks the rim. He creates a little. He creates around the rim. That's where he thrives. That's probably where you want him creating the most. He's also a good shooter. He doesn't take too many crazy shots from the perimeter, but can space it. Um, I think that's important. However, there's there's this whole other argument to his shooting and what that does for his playmaking, because he's more of kind of a spot up shooter that takes a lot of catch and shoot threes or just doesn't take a ton of threes off the dribble. um, You wonder what that does as far as gravity and his gravity on the court. I think understanding a player's gravity is really interesting. When you think of gravity, the first player you're going to think of is Steph Curry. I think it's also easy to think of LeBron, to think of Nikola Jokic, Kevin Durant, these players that just generate so much gravity because of their scoring, their passing, That it makes it very hard for them to go, very hard for opposing defenses to guard. Colin Sexton doesn't have any any gravity as a shooter. I think Jamal Murray is a guy that has gravity as a shooter because he has so much gravity. Teams are having to force doubles. We saw this in the playoffs. Teams will come up with double teams. They'll try to figure out how to guard him around screens. It's incredibly difficult because they don't want to give him any daylight for him to be able to shoot. It's not the same thing with Colin Sexton. While he's okay on pull-up jumpers, it's not... All, all you have to do is watch the difference between Colin Sexton and Jamal Murray, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. There's a clear difference in just the way they're able to score from the perimeter, and so I think that's one thing to be worried about with Colin Sexton as far as how that affects things for his teammates. He probably tries to get to the bucket too more than he tries to create for others. I think when you watch Colin Sexton play his number one thing is that he wants to get to the bucket he wants to score at the bucket and he wants to draw fouls there he wants to go hard at the paint at the paint at the rim sometimes it gets a little bit out of control and i think that's where the main hesitancy for colin sexton being a playmaker comes is just that kind of out of control as well as not being able to make some of the reads that you'd want your starting point guard in the NBA to be able to mer- to be able to make. There are advantages for Colin Sexton being the point guard. And I think the advantages, the advantages ultimately outweigh the disadvantages. He has experience as a starting point guard. Colin Sexton was a starter for four years in Cleveland before ending up not playing a ton of games his last season there. He can spread the floor while he doesn't have the same gravity that Jamal Murray does. He doesn't, make you lose spacing and I think that's important he's a guy that was a 40% shooter last year his downhill scoring his ability to attack the rim does open things up for teammates Um, it's kind of interesting watching old point guards I was watching Steve Nash today Steve Nash just an absolute legend incredible to watch but it's also it's interesting to watch the way they play so Steve Nash a lot of times he's driving and he's getting under the basket and then he's making the pass or he starts driving the defensive, the defense collapse a little bit because he had so much gravity as a driver. And then he kicks it out. Whereas a guy like John Stockton was a lot of post entry passes, um, playing with the defenders in front of him, not necessarily beating them to the rim or beating them to spots. He was just kind of, he's a point guard in, in he was a point God in his own right. Um, he was able to just create things like from the perimeter with the guy sagging off of the, off of him, out of the pick and roll. Not quite the same driver that a guy like Steve Nash was. I think if you're Colin Sexton, the model to follow is a guy like Steve Nash. See how he was able to use his gravity as a driver and how he was able to get guys open because of that. The Jazz have a lot of savvy cutters on their team. I think Walker Kessler, Laurie and John Collins are all guys that know how to cut, when to cut, Ochak is among that list, too. And so I think Colin Sexton and his ability to be a downhill scorer, be a guy that attacks the bucket, is going to open things up for his teammates. I also think the transition scoring and playmaking is important. Um, the Jazz weren't a great transition team last year, but they did have a lot of moments in transition. Colin Sexton thrives in transition. That's where he gets out. He runs so fast and he makes his best reads in transition. Granted, I've talked about this a little bit. Transition reads aren't typically too hard to make. Usually a pass or two will get you open, um, especially when you're just going downhill at incredible speeds. So I think I think that's what he has going for him. And I think ultimately outweighs the disadvantages that the other players have and his own disadvantages. Talen Horton Tucker is the next guy we t- got to talk about. So, as a starter last year, he averaged 18 points per game, six assists per game, five rebounds per game, and 29 minutes per game. So, if you just are looking at his blank stats compared to Colin Sexton's, Taylor Horton Tucker's look better. He also averaged more turnovers per game. Um, I kind of like Taylor Horton Tucker. Uh, I've talked about him. He's a guy that has a lot to prove. But there's also just a lot to like there. Um, He loves to attack the rim. And I think he thrives as a player that operates as a mid-range scorer, as a post-up player a little bit. Like, he loves posting up smaller guards. And he loves to attack the rim. He, he kind of has some crazy dunks, guys. Like, it's it's really fun to watch. So all that combination makes him, I think... Maybe not a plus player in today's NBA when the game, where the game in today's NBA is so much more perimeter oriented. Taylor Horton Tucker kind of has an old school game. And I think his game is more, you would expect it more to be the game of a shooting guard in today's NBA, not necessarily a point guard. I do think out of him, Chris Dunn, and Colin Sexton, Taylor Horton Tucker does probably make the most impressive passes. He also makes the worst passes and has the worst turnovers. Taylor Horton Tucker also has size and length going for him, uh, whereas Colin Sexton is a little bit undersized. Chris Dunn is kind of like the perfect size. But Taylor Horton Tucker, with his really big link span, his thick body, he just like absolutely fits the Jazz's ideology of having size. And, I mean, just think about Taylor Horton Tucker being your starting one and then Ochai Laurie Marketing, John Collins, Walker Kessler, like that is an insanely big starting five. And just because of that team size, you're probably going to win some games. So there's some advantages of, of THT being the starting point guard. I think he's, he's still super young. So there might be even more upside than we're able to see. He's I think he's the most creative scorer of the three. And in some ways he probably has the most scoring gravity of the three because he's able to score in a lot of different situations he's also the least efficient and he's the worst three point shooter from a statistical standpoint of the 3 like i said the jazz would have a lot of length and size on the court he's somebody that thrives in transition along with Colin Sexton and that makes him an intriguing fit ultimately i don't i don't think that's the right role for him as a starting point guard Maybe he plays into it. Maybe he's good enough. I just don't think that's the right position. I think Taylor Horton Tucker has to figure out how to be more of a combo guard, a guy that can be your two guard, can play with other guards, not have the ball in his hands and be effective. He showed that at times last year, especially in those second units when he was playing with Nikhil Alexander-Walker and Colin Sexton. He was kind of being a guy that was playing off the ball, was trying really hard on defense, a guy that would get out and run in transition. I think that's what you want from Taylor Horton Tucker. I don't think it's that complicated as far as what you want. And because he hasn't really been able to prove his ability to play point guard from an efficiency standpoint, it makes it risky to play him at the point guard. Chris Dunn, uh, I I love Chris Dunn. Incredibly fun player to watch. He had a great story last season after being in the G League, coming back out, getting signed onto the Jazz, and then just being an immediate impact player. I thought it was really fun. I think he's the best passer of these three. I also think he just has the most NBA experience. He understands the way NBA offenses run. I think he also understands himself as a player. And that's important. Where my question marks come with Chris Dunn, because if you look at his his stats as the starting point guard, 22 points per game. 10 assists per game, 8 rebounds per game, and 37 minutes per game. Shot 80% from three. Incredible efficiency from all over. But those stats have to be taken with a lot of grains of salt because he was playing at the end of the season as the starting point guard. There's there's advantages of Dunn being the starting point guard. I think when he is your point guard, the offense probably runs pretty smoothly. However, I think it's easier to scheme against from a defensive perspective. Chris Dunn, while I don't think he's a worse shooter than Taylor Horton Tucker, he sure, certainly isn't as confident as a shooter. And he's only taking three point shots if he's like wide, wide open and has a couple seconds to think about it. So I'm I'm I'd be nervous to have him as your starting point guard. Um I don't know. I just think on a lineup where you're playing a guy like Walker Kessler and John Collins, you need to be able to maximize your space around the perimeter. And I don't know if, if Chris Dunn is the answer to that. However, your defense would be really, really good. Imagine him at the point of attack and Kessler behind and then all the length around the court. That's a really good defense. Like you're talking about like a top five defense in the NBA. And so that's that's where, to me, that's where the real intrigue is of having Chris Dunn as your starting point guard because of how good the defense would be. He has a lot of NBA experience, and I think that's great. He has really figured out how to play. I think he's figured out his niche in the NBA. He's also figured out his shots, where he needs to be shooting from. That's important to me. Um, that's something that I'm keeping an eye on to see if his his little floater that he was able to throw out was probably his best shot last year. And I want to see if he's able to capitalize on that this next year. He's just not, I also think one advantage going for him is he's not a score first point guard. That's not what he does. I think he is absolutely, absolutely a guy that makes the right play. He's also 29 though. And how much are you wanting to invest in a 29 year old? Or you could invest in your 19 year old point guard, Keontae George. I think Keontae George is a sexy pick here. I thought he just had a great season last year, or he did not have a great season at Baylor last year. He had a great summer league this last this summer. He's young, and I think there's a lot to like from a lot of different parts of his game. I think the decision-making in summer league was really promising. Was he making the right read all the time? No. Was he making taking the right shots all the time? No. But if you're just looking at the stats, the guy shot 52% from the field, 44% from three. He averaged six six assists per game to two turnovers. So that's about three assists to one for every one turnover. Um, He looked really confident as a point guard. He looked so confident with the ball in his hands. I thought he made some high-level reads, and he probably missed on some reads as well. But... Everything that he showed in Summer League projects him to be the Utah Jazz's starting point guard of the future. I think that's pretty clear. I think he's going to be your starting point guard of the future. The question now is, do you want to accelerate that process? Do you want him to get some of these really important reps right away? There's stuff going for him, though. The Jazz are committed to winning this season. And historically, rookies don't, especially rookie guards, don't really contribute to winning all that much. So I'm not sure how much he'll help. The defense is also a very big question mark. And it might make it difficult for him to play in some high pressure pressure situations. Um, Like, is he a guy that can play in the playoffs? Is he a guy right now? Is he a guy that can play in the play-in tournament to win you a game? Maybe from an offensive standpoint, I think he's almost there. I think there's some things he'll sure up. And then you're looking at a really good offensive player. But if he's a guy that really can't stay on the floor as a defender, um, that's going to make it hard to justify him playing over Colin Sexton, Taylor Horton Tucker, or Chris Dunn, who can stay on the court um, as defenders. So that's where that's where my big question mark with Keontae George is. Ultimately, though, I think this is a really good problem to have, to be looking at Colin Sexton, Taylor Horton Tucker, Chris Dunn, and Keontae George as your options for starting point guard. There's advantages and disadvantages to each. I made it pretty clear. I think Colin Sexton's going to be the guy um, because I think you want to give him as many opportunities to really just prove he's the guy at this point while also allowing Keontae George to settle into the NBA to figure out some things, to be able to understand how to read defenses better. And look, like all three of these guys can play. They can play in the regular season. They can contribute to winning. I would love to see a more efficient game from Taylor Horton Tucker. I would love to see Chris Dunn be able to be a better shooter. I think all three of them, all four of these guys have their wrinkles, and none of them are perfect, which is kind of, uh, I mean, there's kind of two sides to that. Like at the, uh, on one side, you know, all of them have their strengths. On the other side, they all have their weaknesses, and it's going to be hard to justify playing one over the other possibly. So, if you're the Jazz, there's a lot of questions to be asked. Because I don't think all of this is just figured out on a piece of paper. I really think you actually have to go to training camp. You have to see who stands out the most out of the three, out of these four, excuse me, and who's going to be who's going to have the most synergy with Laurie and with Walker Kessler, with these two guys that have pretty much shored themselves up as franchise cornerstones. Which of your point guards is going to be able to maximize those two guys while also just maximizing the offense, being a good defender? I think that's where the real question is going to come out in training camp, and I'm excited to see what happens. It's going to be really fun. Um, We're currently about 70 70 days away from Utah Jazz Basketball. Man, it feels like a long time. It feels like we still got a long time left. We got football season coming up soon. That'll make things a little, that'll make life easier. But we're still, we're still a ways away. Thank you everybody for listening to this episode of the Switch Lake City Podcast. Um, I hope you all enjoyed and hopefully you were able to learn something. As always, make sure you are following me on Twitter at JazzLead, where I'm posting excuse me it's not twitter anymore it's x for some reason anyways i'm posting daily content there um it's been fun we've had some good content going on lately get your fix of utah jazz stuff also on youtube at switch like city if you want to watch the video format of these podcasts make sure you're following me make sure you subscribe i appreciate everybody for listening this has been a fun couple of months. I don't know why on earth I decided to start a podcast during the off season, because this is possibly the hardest time to talk about sports and the Utah Jazz. But we're getting through. We're getting through it. I hope you all enjoyed, and we'll see you next week.